This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello and welcome to another episode of Speaker for the Living. My name is Seth Dare. I am a graduate of the University of Denver's Corbell School in International Human Rights and uh, have written articles and done a number of podcasts about human trafficking. And I am here with my co-host, JJ Jenflown. What up? How's everyone doing? I, too, am a graduate from the master's degree program at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies Relations, but my focus is international studies. I've never quite figured out why we have a difference between those two. And then, uh, because I'm a glutton for punishment and research, I have matriculated onto the PhD program here at the Joseph Corbell School, and I am in my second year, because time flies. Right. I, too, have written articles, and I podcast with Seth, and... That is kind of what I do. I also work for a nonprofit that deals with people uh, who are both consensual sex workers and people who are sex trafficked. Yes, and I also, when I am not uh, doing web design for work, I also research extremism for money. And that's uh, an interesting, heavy topic to research when I'm not researching human trafficking, which is also a heavy topic. Yeah, there's not, when people ask me what I do, I'm like, there's not a lot of fun, joyous things to, to talk about. Yeah, I, I was at a an event last night, a social event, and uh, what do you do? Well, <laughs> that was interesting. So we're both fun yep. at parties, right? Oh, I know. Super fun. It's my personal favorite is, is when people ask me, like, when I'm basically like, well, I do slavery. They're like, why? <laughs> like, they look at me kind of like this expression, like, who hurt you? What'd you do? You know, so, mm -hmm. but we're making a difference out there in the world. One well-researched notification at a time. Seth and I here do domestic uh, trafficking. So we talk about trafficking in the U.S. We do international trafficking, sex trafficking, labor trafficking, everything in between. So. And today... We are going to talk about something that is timely now that we have the fourth hurricane this season hitting the United States uh, mainland, yeah. but not just the mainland. And we're going to be talking about uh, disasters and the, the relationship to human trafficking and how mm -hmm. those two uh, affect each other. Because when there are natural disasters, people are vulnerable. And a lot of the normal situations that keep an area stable are destabilized, destroyed, disrupted. You know, whether that's power, infrastructure, communications, even social networks. Because uh, depending where the water goes, where people have to move to... And uh, so it's on a lot of people's mind, I'm sure. Uh, a lot of us know people in some place that's been affected. And so that's really rough. So uh, among the places we'll talk about in introducing the topic is uh, the ambiguous, unincorporated territory known as Puerto Rico, or Puerto Rico, 
Puerto Rico has had a very, uh, not just a difficult situation now where it's uh, just really rough because of what's happening to, happened to the power grid and infrastructure and the challenge of getting supplies everywhere and the fact that it is an island surrounded by a lot of water. And it's also like historically had a challenging position because it was a territory of Spain. And then at the end of the 1800s, they were given a constitution and certain certain level of independence by Spain and but we were involved in the Spanish-American War and our country invaded them and then they, they were given over as part of the settlement with the Spanish-American War then there were things like them voting for independence early on and the Congress saying no and there's been times like last year or, or I think it's this year actually where they had a non-binding referendum by a small part of the population who ended up voting to say, hey, let's be a state. And they're still in this ambiguous place. And there's debates about how well the U.S. is responding and what level to put on the Trump administration. I'm going to put that aside because what bothers me about everything that's happened with Puerto Rico is the rhetoric, whether that be our president talking about their debt and their uh-huh. infrastructure as his response when he's saying they need help and, oh, these things, whether it's saying they want everything done for them. And if it were just him, that would be one thing. But when I go and read articles and I read comments from fairly anonymous cowards talking about how they deserve it because they are, quote, like socialist or because they have, haven't have run their, their territory correctly or how dare they blame Trump or, or the U.S. when there's all these reasons it's their fault and so they should have to bear that. And that's not those are even the worst most racist xenophobic things that are said by people no, but that, that's the one that people have used to try and like rationalize or explain their racist and xenophobic comments there's been a lot of just flat out plain pure racist rhetoric i think floating around and this is where we have american citizens and they are american citizens just like Going back a couple hundred years, British citizens were in the United States as a territory of Britain. And while there are legal differences, there are many ways where Puerto Rico is essentially a colony. Mm-hmm. Where people who are there, having listened to some com- commentary from people who, who live there or from there, to where we're American citizens, the degree to which we're American, where that... Where that is challenging because partially because how sometimes people view them, the fact that there are surveys after the hurricane where people where where some Americans was like fifty percent knew that they were American citizens. Or even when you have to go to USVI where you have even the news saying, Well, that hurricane, which you can see just went through the US Virgin Islands, 
mm-hmm. which is a U.S. territory, that it hasn't hit the U.S. yet. It's not just the U.S. if it's an yeah. official state. And why why talk about any of that? <laughs> well, aside from I'm quite angry about how certain people have talked about that, like, you know, Houston bears some responsibility for zoning, for building in lowlands and other things, but, you know, there's a disaster with real people and let's help people and let's put aside all of the reasons why it doesn't mean you can't bring them up but when those are front and center like let's help puerto rico and they are our territory and they're our territory because we initially invaded it and because we retained it and we made sure we retained it and if we're going to do that and then on top of that get, have this situation where there's a lot of things that the territory of Puerto Rico did not control that were actually controlled by the U.S. federal government. A lot of things like foreign relations, tariffs, etc. Like, and you can go look up, like, what can Puerto Rico actually control? Puerto Rico and how they've managed things are, like, they, there is some responsibility there. But there's also responsibility quite a bit the U.S. federal government and how that relationship is and right now we have people who need help. We have people without power, people who can't get around where there's a lack of communication, where there's a lack of water, which makes disease more common. And when you have that happen, people are vulnerable. And when you talk about not you well when people talk about yeah. american citizens as a second class and when other people like some puerto ricans feel like they are second class citizens well, and if and if i can inter- interrupt sure. Go ahead. I, I i do feel like it's it's been quite clear that they are in fact treated i don't i don't think it's fair to say that they just feel that way i think it's it's been very clear that that's how they've been presented and ju- just because there have been Puerto Rico gangs or other groups who have done stuff on the mainland, so <laughs> just just because there are small movements that do bad things does not mean we get to talk about 3.4 million people that uh-huh. way. And when we're in a situation where, number one, we need to address this, the disaster in, in Puerto Rico. And in fairness, there's a lot that the U.S. is doing right now, which is great. But that's not everything. Like there, there is a rebuild that needs to happen. And how that rebuild is done, like how we think about, in this case, other Americans will affect how that rebuild goes. It'll affect their current vulnerability, their future vulnerability, potentially how some Puerto Ricans might experience the U.S. if they decide to move to the mainland because the country might be a mess in certain places or because why not move to the mainland if we don't 
really care and we just want to tell people they just want everything given to them. Yeah, exactly. Like, this is part of the whole trafficking slavery discourse. It's about, on one hand, dehumanization, but also treating other people as lesser humans or lesser valued citizens, which is what makes it easier for human traffickers. Aside from the practical, tangible vulnerability that people are experiencing because they lack lots of things on the ground. Whether it's food and water, whether it's ability to communicate. And then when there are people offering help, I'm sure lots of people, hopefully most, by by a margin, are are honestly just helping each other. Mm Mm-hmm. But it doesn't take many people with nefarious motives to take advantage of a situation. So, JJ, uh, well, I guess any other thoughts on Puerto Rico before you dive into uh, how disasters and human trafficking relate? Well, so I think, I mean, I really do think that you kind of touched on this and, and really kind of explained it quite well. But this idea then of vulnerability, Okay. So, as we've talked about a lot, but I don't think people quite understand, human trafficking, and if you maybe want a little bit more nuance on this, I'll look for my dissertation coming to you ideally in a year or two. But so, this idea of vulnerability in human trafficking is, it's our best litmus test or our best way to sort of predict if pe- at the moment if people are going to be trafficked or not. So what makes you vulnerable is everything from your economic level to the risks. It's basically a risk-reward thing. So what risks are you willing to take and why are you willing to take those risks? And a lot of times, why people are willing to take those risks is because of their, say, their economic level, their education level, and or their earning potential. So say you... Uh, are in a situation where there's recently maybe been a government coup and so you can no longer find work because you had previously been working for the administration that's been pushed out, right? Or sometimes it's lack of a social safety net and that can come from not speaking the local language, being a minority like we talked about when we were talking about the Rohingya issue, being stateless, being a refugee, all these things make you vulnerable because you have less ties to a community that can support you and maybe less ties to law enforcement that you feel will support you. And you're more willing to take risks for economic gain or survival because it's not simply a case of you being able maybe to walk into the example people always use is sort of walk into a fast food restaurant and get a job that day, that's not an option for you for a variety of reasons. Maybe you can't be a legal worker. Maybe you don't speak the local language. There just might not be any job availability, period. There might not be a place you can walk into. All sorts of things like that. So when we've talked in the past about human trafficking increasing with refugees, we've talked about it in the form of vulnerability goes up. So you have a large group of people forced to leave their homeland, move to a new area, oftentimes with very few assets. So they're not bringing a lot of money with them. They're not bringing a lot of things they can barter with. Oftentimes they're moving into sort of hostile environments or camp environments. 
you see this with sort of refugees being kept off the coast of Australia and island communities. But you have people who right away are like, well, I need to work. I need to make money. I need to support my family. I need to support myself. We need food. So people in an effort to get access to services will take jobs that maybe if they could be a little bit more discerning, they wouldn't otherwise take when they're in these circumstances. It's no different from that happening in a refugee crisis from when it's happening post-natural disaster. So what I like to, to use as an example is think post-Katrina. Since I think most people at this point, and at least in the U.S., are familiar um, with what happened in Louisiana specifically, but also um, Mississippi following Hurricane Katrina. So you have a mass amount of displaced people, the vast majority of which who were people who were already of a lower socioeconomic status. So they had less sort of uh, ties to being able to gain services in the community. They were viewed, to quote Kanye West's comment about how George Bush hates black people or doesn't care about black people. They were oftentimes positioned as other by the media or felt sort of disenfranchised by the wider American media or just wider American society. And so you saw people who already had very few assets who were forced to flee in Katrina or were sort of trapped. You have the Superdome incidents occurring who then when they come back to their homes are placed largely in sort of FEMA trailers, transitory housing. They're forced to move um, out of Louisiana or Mississippi. Most move sort of in, in Northern areas. Uh, it turns out a lot of people actually moved into uh, Florida and Texas. And so they were doubly hit within their lifetime by hurricanes. And a lot of people lost their jobs. Louisiana and Mississippi are still reeling from the economic impact of Hurricane Katrina. Businesses are destroyed. Infrastructure falls apart. So roads are destroyed. Electrical grids go down. Uh, water systems are exceptionally overwhelmed. And a lot of times people don't have the capital to one, repair this infrastructure, but two, to bring these businesses back. Or because they've lost this population of people who are now forced to leave their home, they don't have the public that used to go to their businesses. So you end up with sort of whole areas of towns that are marked by this blight which then further pushes people out. So just think of that vulnerability of, well, I've moved. I'm in a new area. I desperately need money. We desperately need access to resources. We can't go home because it's not safe. It's underwater or there's no electricity. Um, in the case of Puerto Rico, where there's no infrastructure, there's literally no way to travel in many places. There's no potable water. So there's no drinking water. There's no working sewage system. There's no electricity. If you have a family member or yourself has a medical issue, you might not be having access to the medications or the medical care that you need. Schools are shut down. Hospitals are shut down or overwhelmed. People can't gain access to things like airports. So you just kind of have an entire town hit almost in an apocalyptic way. That creates mass vulnerability. And it is that vulnerability that then turns and creates the possibility for traffickers to come into an area. And that's a really long way of saying, in short, when shitty things happen, people are put in shitty situations. People will then respond to these situations by making really risky decisions or by having sort of criminal elements come and take advantage of them because they have no recourse because of the situation they are in. Vulnerability equals trafficking. The U.S., lost 33,000 jobs in September, according to uh -huh. 
the jobs report, which is the first monthly decline in employment in seven years, and that's attributed to having multiple hurricanes hit the United States. And what I can't underestimate, too, is that one of the things that, that stops human trafficking is, again, are, are these social ties. So having law enforcement, uh, children and youth services, social services, just available to people. When those aren't around anymore or they're vastly overwhelmed, people do fall through the cracks. And these vulnerable people are ones that oftentimes traffickers take advantage of. Well, if you think about how many people have helped in Houston, there's been multiple you know, articles and Facebook memes and other things talking about all the people with boats that just go down and help. And again, I, I'm going to assume that these are all people helping. But mm-hmm. if, any, if any of those people with boats decided to do it for different reasons, there's there's people who need help who aren't going to be in a position to be like, no, I'll just not go with you. It's just not, your, your options are going to be more limited. And so like, do we know whether anyone was trafficked during Houston? No, I, I hope not. But, and I'm trying to be careful here because I don't want to place any blame because I don't have any mm-hmm. data to show that. But it's saying this is how easy it can be for somebody who wanted to traffic somebody is you find somebody who needs your help and you say you're going to take them somewhere and then you don't take them somewhere. Mm -hmm. And some people are good at looking for signs of vulnerability. Like how well does this person speak English? What's the color of their skin? What other questions can I ask to see like whether they have money, whether they have family? Because these are the things that traffickers do with vulnerable people. Speaking mm-hmm. of data, do you have any data? I do. I want to preface this with so a lot of the data we have about trafficking following natural disasters specifically comes with a particular I don't want to say slant but a particular focus shall we say and we've talked about this again on the trafficking of children now in some ways this makes sense we mentioned this when we talked about human trafficking uh, in refugee settings a lot of times you do have unintended children or you have children that maybe are sent to travel on their own to other relatives and they just kind of fall through the cracks. Children are exceptionally vulnerable, again, because, you know, you see a three-year-old crying with an adult. Your, your first inclination is not to think, oh, they're being kidnapped. It's just that, like, it's a three-year-old having a tantrum, you know? So they're small. They're easily controlled. So, like, that's why I think they're increasingly vulnerable in these situations. And then I think it's also just to, when children disappear we presume that there's something criminal that's happened when adults disappear. We in, we presume that they've done it of their own free will. Does that make sense? I mean, we see this sort of just in just regular, you know, I'm, I'm a big true crime person, so it's reflected. Now, what CNN has reported, and I will link this to you, and as always, I say look at comments 
you know, look at look at their methodology. That you have an increase of roughly fifteen percent in trafficking in children, children post natural disasters, and specifically they were looking at um, the Haiti, the earthquakes that hit Haiti, um, and then the tsunami. I don't know if that's a valid claim. I haven't been able to find where they got that statistic from. I do know that UNICEF, however, reported 245 children that were intercepted and saved from trafficking in the two months following the Nepalese earthquakes. And that they actually have methodology that they can track of, of how these kids were identified and how they were pulled. Uh, by law enforcement agencies who saw Nepalese children primarily from rural areas that have been really badly hit by the earthquakes transitioning um, into city centers, um, mostly for working in labor trafficking, but there, I presumably there was some child, uh, there was sex trafficking mixed in there as well. So what, what you have though is we're seeing a clear increase in child trafficking, I am going to do a thing that I normally wouldn't do, and I'm going to extrapolate from that and say that you are then going to also see an increase in adult trafficking, people over the age of 18, maybe because they're they're larger, they're adults, they're not as portable, maybe because they're, they're larger adults, they're more, uh, they're not as easy to control right off the bat, although we've talked about before, um, when we've talked about traffickers controlling their victims, this is sort of a time-honored system. People know what they're doing. They, they Traffickers know what they're doing. They know how to manipulate people. So we, are, we do see an increase post-natural disasters. The only statistics that we have are post-natural disasters de- dealing with children. But given that the vast majority of human trafficking victims are actually adult males, I'm, I'm going to say that I wouldn't... I am, I'm extrapolating. I'm going to go ahead and stake a claim with no real evidence other than anecdotal ones that you're also going to see an increase in adult exploitation. And I think it makes sense. You know, let's say that you're, you're a guy in Puerto Rico who works in the construction industry or you're a truck driver and the infrastructure is completely gone. And, but you do find an advertisement posted for doing some sort of reconstruction work or doing some sort of building work in Arizona but they have to hold on to your passport. You work for six months and then you'll get paid. I could see why people would, would latch on to that and take a job like that, that they might not otherwise have taken, especially one leaving home because why? Because you need the money. You know, you're looking at maybe that your house has been completely destroyed. The infrastructure of your country is falling apart. You have people to take care of. Why not? Did that not answer your question appropriately, Seth? Or uh, yep, that's fine. I know it's just it's hard with stuff like this because there's no clear statistics, and there's a part of me that wonders why there's not. You know, if you're in country as an anti-trafficking organization, and this isn't a slam on UNICEF or anything like that, I'm just saying if you're an anti-trafficking organization in a country post-natural disaster, why only track the disappeared or, or missing children? Why not also track the adults that in the months following, you know, have, have left for work and not returned, whose families are looking for them? I know we see a lot of economic migrants who, who then are labor trafficked. They tend to be 
you know, ages 18 to 35 with, you know, maybe not an immediate family tie. So they don't have a, a wife or a husband. They don't have children. So they feel a little bit more free to travel to other countries or they feel a responsibility to travel to other countries to make money to send remittances or maybe even just to other counties within country, you know, out of their sort of comfort area. But we, we don't have, as a, as a field, we don't have numbers for it. And I think it's because as a human trafficking field, we failed people who don't fit sort of what we think are, are vic- the, the, the perfect victim, which is someone who's not a child, someone who's not a white person, someone who's not female. So one of the main points of this episode is just to be aware of how people can be taken advantage of, even mm-hmm. if it's not trafficking, that people can be taken advantage of after a disaster. And with data, data is going to be a little harder when a lot of normal institutions and infrastructure is disrupted. Mm-hmm. And trafficking is one thing that uh, need to watch out for people that could be taken to other places or that could be not paid, forced to work, etc. Do you have anything else? That's about it. It's 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 also too. I think in the case of Puerto Rico and trafficking increasing, I think we are going to see an, a vast amount of trafficking increasing post Puerto Rico, only because with the infrastructure being as destroyed as it is, and with the U.S. response being what it has been, I think people are probably going to start getting desperate and feel that they have to make inroads. So I think people again are going to be taking risky choices, not to victim blame at all. You know, people are going to be doing it for their own sake of survival. I also think that we are going to have certain criminal elements who are going to take advantage of the situation, who kind of have their finger on the pulse of what law enforcement is looking for or cares about, what government entities are focused on, or what even sort of what the local or government response can be, you know, what they have the funds are sort of the inclination to do. And right now it seems like Puerto Rico is in a lot of trouble. So I think we can, we can see, we'll probably see an increase. Well, and once you get past the disaster part and you start the rebuild, places like Puerto Rico didn't have a great jobs market post uh, section 936, I believe. Mm-hmm which was the policy where uh, manufacturing had tax breaks. Yeah. And then they left and the economy didn't do so well after that. But mm-hmm. like part of not being in a trafficking situation is having good employers, having a job market, having some type of stability. And whether that's Puerto Rico, whether that's anywhere in the world, that's uh, one of the challenges, like getting people out of a situation or keeping somebody from a situation means being able to say, here's a good job. 
which is why solving the problem of modern slavery is a whole it has to be approached holistically it's not just about getting people out of a situation it's not just law enforcement it's also economics social supports mental health and things like that yeah what is it we had a professor one of our human trafficking courses who flat it was like well if you really want to solve human trafficking solve income inequality and poverty but that would that would be step number one <laughs> is is curing that which you know something very simple and easy not hard to do at all well, that's the difference between solving a problem and mitigating, as in lessening the, the problem. And I'm pretty pessimistic within the next 50 years we're going to eradicate human trafficking. Mm-hmm. But if we can make it harder, if we can do better investigations, have better social supports, all of those things can help. What about 60 years? Because I'll only be 90 then. Think we could do it in 60? I don't know. You can aim for it. <laughs> Sometimes if you aim for something, you end yeah. up doing better than if you didn't aim for it. That's true. Well, maybe I'll, I'll bet you $10 that... Actually, no, I can't. I can't even do that. I was like, I'll bet you $10 we fix it. And I was like, nope. <laughs> A little too broken. To, to make that bet. But I hope so. All right. Well, that's I what we, we have for this week. Bit of a shorter episode, but uh, we will be back. And if you have the means or availability, as always, we if you, if you want to do something to sort of help out your local community, please donate. Um, there's a number of reputable businesses to and organizations that have been running hurricane relief efforts both in the U.S. mainland and in Puerto Rico. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda doesn't need any, you know, uh, advertisement from me, but he's released a song that all proceeds go to benefits of, of port- benefit Puerto Ricans, uh, and it's actually fantastic. It's, it's really great. And then finally, uh, just again, uh, if you see something that you think that needs to be reported or that strikes you as a little shaky post natural disaster please as always contact the national human trafficking hotline they are phenomenal people they will help all right with that goodbye everyone have a good week bye be safe out there This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.